if you are a Christian, God hasn't just made you alive. He's given you a new life. A whole new type of life. Just this last week, uh, Keith and I were talking with a group of pastors. And one was recalling that just recently he'd been speaking at a university Christian Union meeting. Uh, not in Liverpool, i just let you know. And at the end of the meeting, someone from the Christian Union said, Okay, everyone, down to the bar. Now, in and of itself, that's not sinful. But when you also hear reports from the same place of students who claim to be Christians and students who are members of the Christian Union who go home from that bar drunk to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend, then eyebrows ought to be raised. And questions, big questions, serious questions ought to be asked. Because whilst responding to the gospel is, as I was explaining last Sunday evening, the result of God having made alive one who was formerly dead in their trespasses and sins, the gospel isn't just a matter of having been made alive. It is a matter of having been raised to a completely new life. That's what the gospel is. This new life that believers enter into at conversion is spoken of in many different ways in both the Old and the New Testaments. And in order to try and summarise it in a single half-hour sermon is fairly challenging, but we can do it. And to help you, I want to consider three things which are key to understanding this and in setting out and continuing in the right direction. There are many practical things that Christians have available to them to assist them in their Christian walk. We sometimes call some of these God's means of grace. Things that he has given you as a Christian so that you can grow and make progress and keep on. So regular prayer and Bible reading for yourself personally. Being a member of a church. Putting yourself under biblical ministry. Making yourself accountable to others. Things of that nature. But I want to address this morning three things that are kind of more general principles in a way that need to be at work in the life of every Christian, which help to describe and define what this new life is and what it looks like or what it should look like in every Christian. I want to think first of all with you about the nature of repentance. The nature of repentance. Now you've heard the word repent in a church like this many, many times. Repentance involves a complete turnaround, a complete change in direction. Repentance involves actively and continually Moving away from one thing as you head towards another. 
And in that sense, repentance goes hand in hand with what we call sanctification in the life of a Christian. Now, this word sanctification is used in the Bible to describe several different things in the life of a Christian. Sanctification is used to describe, first of all, that initial work that God does, as we considered last week, that initial work that God does that makes a sinner acceptable before a holy God. The sinner is made alive. And God is able to look at them as united to the Lord Jesus Christ, cleansed now by Christ's blood, as we've sung about this morning, covered by Christ's righteousness, as we've considered in this series. And on that basis, on the merits of Christ and being united to him, being forgiven of all of their sins. So Paul is able to write to the Corinthian believers, having talked about some of the horrendous things that are typical in the lives of unbelievers, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul there uses the word sanctification, sanctified, to describe something that happened to them as they were converted. This is said to be the sanctifying work of God. And with that, of course, comes the sinner's own conscious awareness of sin and of their own great need to repent of sin, to turn to Christ because they recognize him now as their only hope of salvation. And so as the sinner repents, all this is going on as God works in them by his grace. Sanctification doesn't stop there, though. Sanctification also describes that ongoing work of God in the life of every Christian, as they grow in understanding, as they grow in their knowledge and love of Christ, as they grow in their pursuit of holiness and righteousness and godliness and obedience. We're going to be thinking about obedience this evening. Continual repentance is part of this process of sanctification as sins continue to be confessed. As Paul says, the Christian battles with their former sinful ways in putting off how things used to be and putting on how things must now be because you're in Christ and because you're a follower of Jesus. So in Galatians chapter 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, he speaks of putting on the new man and putting away the old. In Colossians 3, we find again putting to death and putting off all the attitudes and behaviours of one who was far from God. And, says Paul, putting on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And then in these words, in 1 Thessalonians 4, because you see, this is a foundational part of Paul's teaching all through the New Testament scriptures. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk, And to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his, his own vessel in sanctification and honour. And Paul's own personal testimony, right at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 26, he's before King Agrippa. He says this to Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. If you've truly repented, it makes a big difference. It shows. It's obvious. It's clear. Part of your testimony as a Christian is the repentance of your sins and from your sins that goes on and on and on as part of your daily living with Christ. And then, of course, this is something that we just sung about. It's mentioned at the end of Titus chapter 2. One day we will be finally and completely sanctified as Christ glorifies us, as he takes us. Uh, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, made fit for heaven that we might remain and dwell with him forever. Our final complete sanctification when Christ returns So you need to understand, you see, when we talk about repentance, repentance isn't something that you just do once when you're converted and then it can be forgotten. Repentance is an ongoing attitude of heart and mind in the life of the Christian. It's a characteristic of the new life that sinners receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a determination in the Christian it's a determination that God brings. It's a determination that comes from the fact that God is in you and alive in you and working in you. Paul says that is how we will and do things as Christians, because of the mighty power of God that's in us. But it's a determination to keep on walking away from where you once were. And from that lifestyle and from everything that went with it. And to keep on walking towards and with Christ. And the continual exhortations to Christians in Paul's letters make it abundantly clear that this is something that we are to be conscientiously and willfully active in. Not passive. We're active in this. We put our minds and our hearts and our souls to it. Being made alive in Christ brings you to a new life in Christ. And to help you, first of all, you need to understand the true nature of repentance. What that really means. Secondly, you need to understand the place of God's law in the life of a Christian. Obedience to God is a central core of true Christian experience. And the apostles make frequent reference to it. That as Christian people, 
you are obedient to God. In Romans 1, Paul talks about obedience to the faith. Romans 15, to make the Gentiles obedient. In Romans 16, he says to Christian people, your obedience has become known to all. And in the same chapter, he talks about for obedience to the faith. In 2 Corinthians 7, we read these words of Paul. His affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. And when Paul writes to Philemon, remember he's sending back Onesimus who who ran away and uh, they're to be reunited. And Paul says to Philemon, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. And it's not just Paul, it wasn't some personal hobby horse that Paul had, this issue of obedience. Because some Christians think that when other Christians talk about the need for obedience, it is just some personal hobby horse that they've got. But listen to Peter. This is an abbreviation of some of the things that we read in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, put your brains in gear, put your spiritual Christian brains in gear, Be sober as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it's written, be holy for I am holy. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And so he continues. And in the book of Hebrews... Here's a verse which really nails it on the head because in Hebrews, of course, it's constantly pointing to Christ. And in Hebrews 5 from verse 8, we read this. Though Christ was a son, yet he learned obedience. If you've got an issue with obedience, look to Christ. You claim to be a follower of Christ. Well, follow him in obedience. He had to learn obedience and so must you. If you're a Christian and you're saying, I'm following Christ and I'm walking after him, then walk after him and follow him. He learned obedience and so must his people, so must his children. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Obedience is a big issue for a Christian. Some don't like it, but you can't escape it. If you're of the opinion 
that any emphasis on obedience to God is out of place in the Christian church and in the Christian life, you've got an awful lot of scripture to explain away. Because I've only scratched the surface. But obedience to what? How do you know if you're being obedient? What is it I am to, to obey? You say, well, it's obedience to God, it's obedience to Christ. Well, yes, but how do you know if you're being obedient or not? How do you know what it is you're supposed to be obeying? Well, it's the law of God. Obey God's law. There are Christians who don't like this emphasis because to them it smacks of legalism. And it suggests you have to live a certain way to be acceptable to God. Well, you don't have to live a certain way to become acceptable to God because you can't. But as a Christian, actually you do have to live a certain way if he's to be pleased with you. Do you remember how I said there were some who believe that God's love and mercy simply overwhelm and eradicate his need for justice because his love is so much greater? In a similar way, there are those who think that God's grace has overwhelmed his law and eradicated the law and made it a thing of the past. The law is of no consequence in the life of a Christian because it's all about grace now. They, they look at a verse like John 1.17. The law came through Moses. That was then. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is now. Two distinct and separate things. The law is out. Grace is in. But then Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, Jesus said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. And in him, that is what we must do. Grace changes our relationship to God's law, but it doesn't throw God's law out the window. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you must keep my commandments. That's explicit language. You must. Of course, if you truly love Christ, you will, but you must. You only have to read the, the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel and see that Jesus clearly believed that all the moral laws and principles contained within the Ten Commandments continue to apply to God's people. None of them have been wiped out. And in fact, Jesus applies the Ten Commandments more widely and more deeply than we ever imagined they could be applied. So, for example, here's a man who protests his innocence, but I haven't even been alone in the same room with that woman, to whom Jesus says, if you have looked at that woman with lust in your eyes, you're guilty of adultery. Don't tell me the law has been thrown out the window just because of grace. But exactly how do grace and God's law sit side by side in the life of a Christian? How does it work? What's going on? Well, we've seen, just as we've considered 
the basics of the gospel, that the requirements of God's law still stand. If they did not, we would not be guilty before him in our sins. But we are. But those requirements of God's law have been met by Christ for us and imputed to us by God's grace. We've learned that word propitiation, the satisfaction of God's justice, because his law still stands. This is the ground of our justification. Why do we need to be justified? Because the law of God still stands. But this is all made ours by God's grace. You, Christian believer, you no longer stand cursed because of your lawlessness. Because Jesus became the curse for you. But that doesn't mean that you could now ignore the law or not bother with it. Not even think about it. But a true believer, a true believer has no desire to ignore the law. Because a true follower of Christ has within them the life of the law keeper. Christ kept God's law perfectly, without sin, perfect righteousness. The life of the perfect law keeper is now within you. You don't have to keep the law to become right with God. You can't. As a Christian, I've got some even better news for you. You don't have to keep the law to stay right with God. Because it's all dealt with in Christ. But the new life that you've received, that new life actually has law keeping built into its spiritual DNA. The new nature that you receive as one who's been made alive in Christ is to be a law keeper. To live a life that pleases God. If you're truly a Christian, that's within you. I want to please God. My great desire is to please God as his child. As an unbeliever, the principle that sin is lawlessness is all too evident. But there's been a total turnaround in the Christian. We read about it like this in Ezekiel chapter 36. Some of you will know these verses really well. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. This is the life that we receive in Christ. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God doesn't just make you alive. He gives you a new life, a new type of life. God says there, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The very nature of this new life I give you is of one who walks in my ways, one who keeps my law. It's deep within you now. It's not something external that you're trying to strive towards. It's deep within your heart and soul. And you will keep my judgments and do them. If you've truly received this new life in Christ. 
It's not that your salvation depends upon keeping and doing God's judgments. Your salvation by grace produces in you the keeping and doing of God's judgments. That's how grace and law come together. This is genuine salvation. God in his grace has done this to me. And this which God has done produces that. And that's how grace and law come together in the life of the Christian. And that's the theme in Titus chapter 2 that Tim read for us earlier. All the way through. The whole chapter is talking about the new kind of life that Christian believers have. Both women and men. And Paul addresses the kind of behaviours there that ought to be found in the lives of church members all the way through. Qualities of life so very different to those opening verses of Romans that we looked at right at the start of this series. As Paul confronts the world with God's unpalatable truths. But the difference in the life of believers now, like in, Timothy, in Titus chapter 2 and from verse 11 in Titus 2, there's such a helpful explanation of the place of God's grace which brings salvation and the resulting lawfulness in the life of those who've been redeemed from lawlessness. You see, this is the change that this new life in Christ brings. Lawlessness in our sins. Lawfulness in Christ. It's within you if you're a believer. This is what Paul says to Titus. Let's just read those words again. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us. What does the grace of God do? It teaches us. What does it teach us? That if we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. This, says Paul to Titus, is the work of grace in the life of the Christian. And looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearance of Christ. He gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works now. That's the work of God's grace. To completely change our relationship to God's law. It's within you. It's within you. And these things don't just happen in the life of a Christian. If they did just happen, all of the admonitions and exhortations that we find in the New Testament would be completely pointless and a waste of space in the Scriptures. If it all just happens, it doesn't just happen. You have to give yourself to it. But the giving yourself to it is the work of God's grace. The giving yourself to it is the power of God at work in you by his spirit. When Paul says to Titus at the end of chapter 2, speak these things, exhort. Why Paul? Because Christian believers need to be exhorted in these things. And rebuke with authority. Why, Paul? Because Christians are going to need to be rebuked in these things. 
if you ever come out of a sermon feeling you've been rebuked, don't get in a huff with the preacher. Thank God for it. Because that's the preacher's job. Providing that rebuke has come from the scripture. That's an important qualification. If the rebuke is from the scripture, thank God for it and go away and change. Become more like Christ. Become the Christian believer that God wants you to be if through the preacher you've been rebuked. It's biblical. Don't turn against it. Obedience is a conscious, willful thing in the life of the believer. But you're in a relationship with God now. And these things are the overflowing and outworking of God's grace within you. There's that great old story of the new housekeeper who was given a long list of duties by her new boss. All the things she needed to do in his home to keep him happy. And the big long list was pinned up on the kitchen wall. Arduous chores and lots of instructions all to be obeyed. But housekeeper and employer slowly grew closer and fell in love and married. And the housekeeper's list was removed from the kitchen wall. Many years later, that wife was clearing a drawer in the kitchen and right at the bottom, folded up, she found the old list. She opened it up and read it. And to her great joy, to her considerable surprise, she realised that she was doing every single one of those things and far more beside, simply because she loved her husband and he loved her. She was doing it all. It didn't feel like a list of chores anymore. It's just what she did because of who she was, who she'd become. You see, that's God's law for you now, Christian believer. Because of who you are, because of what you've become in Christ, by God's grace. Now, one final, very brief, concluding point. The likeness of Christ. When the gospel makes you alive, God puts in you a new life. Why? That you might become like Christ. That in increasing measure, day by week, by month, by year, in whatever time the Lord gives you on this earth, you might become more and more like the Saviour who loved you and gave himself for you. I just want to read a few verses from 1 John and chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 
He begins the chapter with these words, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, why did John write that? Because he understands the nature of the work that God does in a sinner. He doesn't just make you alive, he gives you a brand new life. And built into your spiritual DNA in Christ is that you love God's law. It's a delight to your soul. You love to do his word. You love to know that you're pleasing your heavenly father. That's why John writes like that. He understands these things. We know we know him if we keep his commandments because that's what people who know him do. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now, I thought to myself, what can I say that makes it clearer? Well, there's nothing more to be said. He who says, I know Christ and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Hmm. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The love of God is in you and it's doing its work. By this, we know we are in him. He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk just as Christ walked. That's the life. That's the life. If you haven't already realized it, it is this new life which you are called to. And it's an expression, a reflection, an imitation, a reproducing of Christ's life in you. Not just alive, a new life. The very life of Christ received through faith by God's grace. Not only imputed to you for right standing before God but imputed to you for right living before God. This, nothing more, nothing less, is what it means to be a Christian and one who has come under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may he help us in all that it means to know and love and follow him.